So we're in a series called Theology Untangled, and it is a series in which we have asked you all to give us what theological questions you have that have been troubling you, that have been on your mind, that you have struggled and wrestled with. And so we have answered many questions so far. And last week's message, I think, was the perfect uh, center of this series, and it was on applied theology, that our our theology should not just be ideas that resonate with us or that we can say, yes, amen, you know, click the I believe this doctrine box, but rather they, they should translate into an attitude of humility and lived out uh, doing good to one another, loving God and loving neighbor as self. Well, tonight, the, the question that we're going to seek to answer is actually three questions in one. It is, number one, how old is the earth? It's a good question. What in the world are the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6? And thirdly, we're going to try to answer, are Adam and Eve real historical people? And we're going to try to do that in one message. And so we're going to frame that in three questions. And the first two questions, we do not have to be red-faced, fist-poundingly dogmatic about. But the third, I will argue, we do. All right? So let's start by reading Genesis 1, the whole chapter, into the very uh, first few verses of chapter 2. So I'm going to read it without pausing, without Uh, expositing. We're just going to read together Genesis chapter 1 and the first several verses of chapter 2. So if you want to read along in your Bible or if you want to read along on the screen, feel free to do so. It's the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and to rule over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And there you have the account of God creating the heavens and the earth. So here's what we're dealing with. 
We're dealing with an important first question here. The reason this first question is so important is because it literally gives you a worldview. Did God create all things that we know? Does reality find its origin in God or the other multiplied explanations that exist in the non-biblical worldviews? This is an important text. Does does the multiple universes uh, theory explain all reality? Does uh, simulations that are multiplied explain reality? Uh, Does there have to be this point of singularity that exploded and all things uh, came out of that singularity of explosion? You know, there, there are so many ways that people try to explain how is it that there's something rather than nothing? And we Christians need to have an answer to that question. And it needs to be an answer that is biblically rooted. And so though we've said this before, I'll say it again. Our authority as Christians does not rest in anything outside of the Bible. It is not does not rest on your schooling and your degrees or how many books you've read or what title you have in a church or an organization. Your authority, if you have any, rests solely on the scriptures. Now that being said, if you've ventured into this question at all, you know that there are so many interpretations of Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 that it can make your brain explode. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you're like me, and you grew up in the church, because I did, and you thought there was only one view of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, 1 to 3, and that is six literal days, God created all things, six literal 24-hour days, and then on the seventh day, God took a break, and he rested from his work. End of story, no more discussion. It's plain as that. Can't you read? Right? And, th- and that's, that's the way that I understood it growing up. It's just a plain, literal understanding of the text until you start to dig a little bit in the text itself, and you're like, oh, oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. So how is it that there was light before the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day? How is it that chapter 1, verse 1 gives an overview of the whole thing. In the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth before any days are mentioned. You know, and there's all these questions that start emerging from the text itself if you will look at it a little more deeply. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it a little more deeply. Here's what I don't want us to do. Okay? Many people who I know who hold to a literal 24-hour view, and then from there they generally will say, 6,000 to 10,000 years max, that's how old the earth and the universe are. You know, and, and as you scientists in the room know, well, all we have to do is look at stars that are millions of light years away, and then imagine it would take millions of years for that starlight to get to us to then say, how could there be millions of years of starlight and yet the universe is only 10,000 years old. And questions like these come up when you start looking at the text and looking at 
the world of science. And so most of you know this, God has two revelatory books. Number one is the book of creation. What we see in the created world, in the oceans, in the heavens, in biology, in geology, in the fossils, the book of creation. We can learn a lot from what God has revealed in what he has made. This is how Romans chapter 1 argues. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them in what he has made. And he's arguing about people who've never had the scriptures or have been told that there is a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit or that Jesus died on the cross for sin. No, that, that takes the second book, which we know as specific or special revelation, the Bible. We cannot know from creation itself that God exists in three persons. We cannot know from creation itself that God, the eternal creator, became a human being by way of a virgin birth to accomplish what we could not, live righteously and then pay the penalty for the sins of all those who would trust in him. You can't know that from going out and studying any of the other sciences. We need special revelation or the Bible for that. So with the two books, we can learn a lot about reality. And what we want to be careful as Christians is that we don't make very sure dogmatic statements about Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 that might not be so accurate, and then discredit people's view of the rest of the Bible, okay? So, so here, here's an example. For many, many, many years, theologians and the general scientific consensus was that the earth was the center of the universe and everything else revolved around it, geocentrism. Calvin and Luther believed this, okay? And they, you can look up their writings on it. This was just, everyone believed this. Okay? And they had verses to back up this view, all kind of verses. And the problem is the scientific exploration and the multiplied understanding of the known world and the universe is now so clear. We know that the sun is the center of our solar system and the planets revolve around it. Now you get that from a text like Joshua where they're in a battle and God is said to have made the sun stand still and not go down until the fight was over. And, and the perspective from that text, it's looking from man's perspective at the sun, and it looks like the sun comes up, and the earth stays still, and then the sun disappears east to the west. But really, that's a human perspective looking up at this phenomenon, and that's the perspective that the Bible takes that account from. Okay? And so science has helped us to interpret that text a little better. Another example is in the Psalms, it says that God uh, has the earth on pillars. It's fixed on pillars, which seems to say it doesn't move. It's fixed pillars. They don't move. They stand up straight and they're secure. But we now know the earth rotates. We have instruments that can, can measure you know, the distance of stars and we can see the, the constellations moving. And we know that the earth moves. And so what we do with that particular text in the Psalms is we say... Oh, it's poetic. It's pointing to a truth that God's 
earth is fixed and the seasons are fixed and the laws of nature are fixed, but it's a poetic way of saying that, not a literal fixed, not moving earth. Does that make sense? So we must be careful that as more scientific discovery happens, we don't, in a dogmatic way, assured it cannot be other than this way, say, six days, 24 hours, seventh day, 24 hours, that's it, no questions beyond that. Now, that is a view, and that's the view I've held, okay? And, and here's the answer to the question, well, then how can all the scientific evidence point to an old earth and an old universe, which they do? And the answer is simply, if you hold that view, God didn't make Adam a baby, did he? He didn't make him an embryo. No, he made him a mature human male. And so in the same way, he would have created an entire universe that appeared old because it was mature at its creation. God didn't create eggs that then hatched and turned into chickens. He said, let there be, and there was chickens, right? So which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. <laughs> so that, that can be explained. If you hold to a young earth and a 24-hour literal view, you can give an answer to that question. Then why does the universe look so old? And how can we see stars that are millions of light years away? Well, God made a mature universe. And he also made the light appear on day four in the day that he created. The light came and the stars went. All right, that's one view. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at many views, because there are many, and we're going to talk about the Hebrew word for day, okay? So let's do it. Here is six different views, and I know you can't read that because it's small. I will read it for you. But these are biblically faithful views that you can hold and still be a Christian and still hold to Genesis 1 and 2 being the Word of God. And these are just six. Your Gospel-Centered Community Discussion Guide has about five, and they're not all the same. Okay, so, so let's be open that there are various interpretations of the text, and we don't have to insist on our view as if it's gospel truth. So the 24-hour day view. The days described in Genesis 1 are consecutive 24-hour periods of time. This is indicated by the phrase evening and morning. And the coupling of the Hebrew word yom, which is the word for day, yom, with a number. Yom 1, yom 2, day 1, day 2. Then you have the day-age view. The days of Genesis are chronological descriptions of the remote past, where each day corresponds to a long period of time. Now you might say, how is that possible? Because the word day doesn't have to mean 24 hours. It can mean other than that. And we know from 1 Peter that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years are like a, a day. So it doesn't have to... Day doesn't always have to mean 24 hours. Progressive creation. Creation occurred over six 24-hour days, each of which was separated by long periods of time. So there's a big gap in between the 24-hour days. Creative activity was intermittently punctuated, quote-unquote, by eons of time. Okay, so each day was a day, but then there were huge gaps, eons of time in between the two days. This would explain why science says the universe looks very old. The literary framework. The days of Genesis do not describe a linear sequence of 24-hour days. 
Genesis 1 conveys a structured outline of creation activity where the description of days 1, 2, and 3 conceptually parallel days 4, 5, and 6. Days 1 to 3 are preparatory to the acts of 4 and 6. Now listen to this. Okay, here's what that just said. Okay, days 1, 2, and 3 were God preparing the environment for what happens in days 4, 5, and 6. Here's your examples. Day 1, creation of the light, separating light from darkness. Day 4, creation of light, separated light from darkness in day 1. And then day 4, the parallel is light bearers are created. Stars, sun, moon, light bearers. Day two, separation of waters and the formation of the sky. Waters and sky filled with living creatures. Day five. Day three, dry land is appearing. Day six, land animals and human beings are created, sustained by plant life. Now, you can't say that's ridiculous. You can't. That, that makes sense, that days one, two, and three are simply parallels of day uh, four, five, and six. And the preparation that happened on one corresponds to four, two to five, three to six. That's why it's a legitimate view. Number five view, revelatory days. Six days described in Genesis are 24-hour periods or less. But creation did not occur on those days. Rather, over the course of six days, God revealed to the writer how he created the heavens and the earth. And that, that's a legitimate view as well. So here's what that looks like. That looks like Moses is hearing from God, because Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? And so as God is revealing to Moses the creation story, or as Moses is writing down the creation story, or as he gave it to Adam, perhaps to write down and then pass down, it's simply God's way of telling human beings how he created. It's possible. Or analogical. Six days of creation are merely analogy for the normal human work week preceding the Sabbath. So the, the analogy, an, analogical. Okay? So... There, these are legitimate views that you can hold and still hold faithfully to the biblical authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And you will find theologians who are inerrantists, meaning they believe the Word of God is true. They don't necessarily have to receive evolution as God's means of creating. They hold that God did create all things, and He didn't have to use death in order to accomplish that. And they don't all agree. They don't all agree. Now, look at this. Here is one example of how day does not mean day in the same way in Genesis chapter 1. So this is 1.5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, same word, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first Day. Do you see it? So just the light is called day, but that can only be 12 hours if you're at the equator. So right there in the same verse, you have day and day, and it means two different things. So day does not have to mean day. And that you know this, you do this all the time. If I said to you, back in the day, I used to wear clothes that were three times as big as I should have been buying them because I was in the hip-hop culture. 
And, and, and now I'm like, oh, praise God there was no, you know, Facebook or Instagram because you would look at me back in the day and you'd be like, you were a fool. And I would say, amen, I was a fool. <laughs> right? We do this with day. Right? We say there's a coming day of the Lord in the scriptures, and that means a time, a time frame where he's going to come and judge and take over. Does that mean it has to be a 24-hour literal day? No, it doesn't mean that. So we do this all the time, don't we? Brian Chappell, who's the president emeritus, meaning he was the former president, a, a covenant theological seminary, author of many books, one of his most famous is Christ-Centered Preaching, said this, this is the complexity of the text, and if, don't read that yet, okay? Let me, let me just preface this. You're all reading it, not listening to me. All right, listen, the way that Moses wrote Genesis is complex, and it doesn't come through in the English, okay? So imagine this. Okay? Imagine that, that Moses was reared up in Egypt with the best of the best of the knowledge of Egypt. He was Pharaoh's son. Remember, taken out of the river Nile and, and brought up in the understanding and in the education. So Moses had a brilliant education. And then he also met with God, and God was revealing to him special revelation. And then Moses recorded for us. Moses was not, if you will, an uneducated shepherd, though he was a shepherd, shepherding Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep. Now, Brian Chappell says this, just about a few things you can note in the first chapter of Genesis. You ready for this? Brian Chappell says, it was good seven times. You can see that in the text. First verse, seven Hebrew words. Second verse, two times seven Hebrew words. Seventh paragraph, which is about the seventh day, three sentences, each with seven words. The middle expression in the middle of that paragraph is about the seventh day. The seventh paragraph has five times seven words. The way in which the biblical writer is organizing things is not an easy fit into our literal categories. It is history with theological and symbolic import embedded, tightly woven, and masterfully crafted all at the same time. Now, we, don't, we don't see that in the English, but if you look deeply, you can see it. There is complexity going on in the first chapter. In other words, it's not just and only a historical account. It can't be. There's literary devices happening there. There's numerology happening there. And remember, seven is the number of completion, pointing to God in his completeness and perfection in creating. And then let me point out this too. The seventh day is not said to be like the other six because there is no, and there was morning and there was evening. It just stops. God rests and there's no and there was evening, and there was morning the seventh day. And then Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we can enter into the Sabbath rest of God. In other words, he's still resting, and it's been a long time. How long? I don't know. I don't know how long. The Bible doesn't say. It's been a long time. Since the creation of Adam and Eve, he's been resting. Okay, now this is Augustine. Okay? If you've done any digging into the subject, you've found this quote. But I know a number of you have not. Now remember, Augustine is not a recent theologian. He's way pre-Darwin. 
And here's what he says about the age of the earth. Now, now, so you know that what Augustine was thinking, he was thinking, wait a minute, God could just say, let there be, boom, and he could create it all without any time in between. He didn't need seven days. God could do it in one second, right? So this is what Augustine is wrestling with. And I agree with Augustine. God didn't have to do seven days. He didn't have to do ages. He could just be like, now, all of it, bang, okay? So here it is. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon and the cycles of the years and the seasons, about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. Book one, Natural Revelation. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. That's what we call science, reason and experience. Now, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel, that he means that in the non-believer sense. Don't believe the Christian Bible or the creation account in the Bible. It is a dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, take talking nonsense on these topics. These topics being the first book, Natural Revelation. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian so he's saying, we should avoid this embarrassing situation. What's the situation, Augustine? In which people show a vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. In other words, they look at a Christian going on and on about science, and they have no idea what they're talking about. That's what Augustine's warning against. And then he says this, the shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is derided, the shame is not that the Christian gets made fun of or laughed out of his you know, talk, but that people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions. See what Augustine's saying here? What's dangerous is that they think our Bible teaches what they ignorantly talk about science. That's what Augustine's warning against. And then he goes a step further. And to the great loss of those whose salvation we toil, the writers of our scripture are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish and the light of reason, reckless and incompetent expounders of Holy Scripture bring untold trouble and sorrow on their wiser brethren when they are caught in one of their mischievous false opinions and are taken to task by those who are not bound by the authority of our sacred books. For then, to defend their utterly foolish and obvious untrue statements, they will, they will try to call upon the Holy Scripture for for proof, and even recite from memory many passages they think support their position, although they understand neither what they say nor things about which they make assertions. And somehow, I'll blame it on Satan, missing from that quote, when you look that up, is that they won't believe us when we talk about the resurrection and the new birth and things of that nature. 
Okay, and I, I don't, the only thing I could think is like right here, there's a little portion that's squeezed together. I think it, it disappeared. And uh, the most important part of the quote disappeared. Coincidence? I think not. Notes don't work? I think not. Anyway. And, and interestingly, the reason is, is because now we're going to talk about Nephilim and Satan and demons. Okay, so here's question two, and I understand my time is running short, but we had to deal with the big one first. So in conclusion, let us not be so dogmatic about our view that you make a fool of yourself. The best thing to do is say, I believe this, but I might be wrong. I might be wrong about this. Now, remember I said, we're going to deal with question one, two, and three. The first two we should not be dogmatically assertive about, but the third one we should. Okay, we'll get to the third one in a minute. Question number two. Now listen, if you want books on this, I can give you more resources than you can read in your lifetime. So you ask me, and I will give you all kinds of information about that point one there, and you can go to town, okay? So let's move on. We only have 45 minutes, and I got 10 left. So let's hit question two and three quickly. Question two is, what are the Nephilim in Genesis 6? And I love Nephilim. Like, I have Nephilim t-shirts, Nephilim posters on my wall. I love the Nephilim. Where are they? Where do they come from? They come from Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilim giants were on the earth in those days. Okay, there's where it comes from. It's the only place they're mentioned in Scripture, yet they're alluded to in other parts of the text. So let's read Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim, you could translate that, giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward. Notice the days, in those days, not meaning 24 hours. In those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Here's what's happening here. Okay? You have two main views of this text, and I hold the one that less people hold. Okay, but I will not fist-poundingly, dogmatically try to convince you. This Nephilim are either two things. They are giant men who were very violent and they were warrior-like men. Or these Nephilim are half-demon, half-people race that God needed to destroy with the flood. Which view do you think I take? I take the second. Okay? And it's not just because I love C.S. Lewis. I think there's textual grounds for this view which is why I hold it. All right, so write in the text, and then we'll jump to two texts in the New Testament quickly. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. That, that phrase, sons of God, is used in the Psalms and Job to talk about angels, not just men, angels. So the text seems to be saying that the angels saw the daughters of men and were attracted to them. Angels attracted to women. 
And then as we move through the text, it says, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever. His flesh, his day shall be 120. The Nephilim giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God, there it is again. When did this Nephilim appear? What were they doing? When the sons of God, angels, came into the daughters of men. I don't have to tell you what that means, do I? Now, now, how that happens, I have no idea. Like, I don't know. What we do know from the New Testament is that angels can take physical form, and it happens often. In the Old Testament, they take physical form, and they grab Lot and his daughters and his family, and angels, spirits, take them out of their house and make them flee the city. An angel smacks Peter and wakes him up when he's in prison and says, you got to get out of here now. You know, like, wake up, Peter. There are accounts all through the Bible of angels physically interacting with men and women. Okay, so, so it's not an impossibility that this could be the case. I said could be the case. Okay, or there's some other thing happening where angel or demons are possessing men and through this weird magic arts, satanic thing, they're impregnating women. Now, that being said, if this was the only text, I would be very hesitant to hold my position. But Jude and Peter talk about this same thing. Let's look at it. Jude 1, 5 to 7. Now, Jude is a, a uh, a letter, a one-chapter letter, warning against false teaching, warning against leaving the faith. He said, I, I thought it good to write to you about our common faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we, it's a warning letter. And he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So verse 5, he's saying that Jesus was involved in the exodus. He was the angel of the Lord. You know, Paul talks about the, the rock of Moses being Christ, who was struck and gave them water and gave them life. And listen to this, verse 6. And the angels, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. There's that 24-hour day again. So this, this seems to be saying here in verse 6 that there were angels in the past who left their position, maybe angel to angel realm, and God so judged them, he locked them up in eternal chains and they can't get free. This is confirmed when Legion encounters Jesus in Mark chapter 5, and he says, don't send us to the pit. Send us to the swine. Send us to the pigs. How would they know God could send them to the pit? He must have been in the business of doing that in the past. And so here it seems to be saying that these angels did something so bad that God said, to the pit with you, and you will eternally stay there until judgment day. Now, look at the context and look at verse 7. Just as, so just like this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Terrible sexual immorality. Wait, so you're saying, no, Jude's saying that angels like that sinned. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Angel to women, unnatural desire. Now, you know Sodom and Gomorrah was man, man, woman, woman, and and likewise. Unnatural desire served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I don't know what you do with that unless you point to Genesis 6 and say, that smells like Nephilim to me. (laughs) Now, if that was the only place, I might be a little skeptical, but here's Peter. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Peter is talking here about false teaching, and he's warning against false teaching. And he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, this happened in the ancient world. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, remember the context? Genesis 6, Nephilim, the next scene, God destroys the earth with a flood. Noah, it's in the context. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So in the context, both times, you have sexual immorality and angels because of Sodom and Gomorrah, and now you have angels locked up in, in prison, just like in Jude, and here it's connected to Noah. That's why I think the Nephilim were this half man, half demon, giant race of non-human beings that God had to kill in the flood. And those demons, I think, who did this thing are now locked up and they will never get out to do it again. And the demonic realm knows, hey, we know what happens when you do stuff like that. I'm not doing that. And stay away from those daughters of men. <laughs> okay, now, like I said about the six literal days or all those other six views, we don't ha- I'm not gonna fist-poundingly argue you on this unless you, you know, if you think they're just giant men or they're renowned kings who were very violent and were able, uh, it's, not that, it's not that big a deal to me, okay? But what is a big a deal to me is the next question, and that is, were Adam and Eve literal, historical human beings? And the answer, we must say, is absolutely yes, hands down, no matter what view you take of Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because Jesus himself points to Adam and Eve as real historical people, and if Jesus is wrong, throw the faith away. And not only that, but Paul, this is, I think, even more important than the Jesus argument, Paul rests the very gospel of our salvation on the fact that Adam and Eve were real historical people. A few texts, and we'll shut it down. Acts 17, 24 to 26, Paul is arguing with the philosophers on Mars Hill, and he is proclaiming to them this unknown God whom they had an altar to. And he says, I come to reveal to you this unknown God of whom you are worshiping. And he says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. One literal man. From that man, he made every single nation of men. 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. NIV translate, determining the exact times and places where men should live. In other words, Paul's resting his argument here on God the Creator, creating every nation, every ethnicity that we we know of from one human being. Now, Eddie and I, a couple years ago, did a, a shared message on race. He stood here, I stood here. And you can find that in the um, Cursed In Between series on the website. And we explain through the Tower of Babel how this happened. How did the ethnicity show up that we observe in 2020? How did this happen biblically? Go back and listen to that message. All right, here is Paul resting the gospel on a literal Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, if you know Romans 5, Paul argues the Adam type being us, the fallen humanity in Adam, and then he argues the Jesus type, the other man. And these are two heads of humanity that everyone finds themselves in. The first man, Adam, sinned and represented us all. And so all who are not united, connected to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, they find their identity and their place in the first. Let me say that a different way. There were only two men ever born sinless. Only two men were ever born without a human father. And two men represent two separate humanities, Adam and Jesus Christ. And whether you like it or not, God categorizes humanity that way. You're in Jesus or you're in Adam. And what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam accomplished. He fought the snake and won. Adam fought the snake and lost. Adam Though failing to obey God, the second Adam didn't fail even once. And he humbled himself to obedience, even death on the cross, Philippians 2 tells us. Here's Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, Genesis 3, Adam, death reigned through that one man, so death enters into the picture through the fall of Adam. And the curse enters through the fall of Adam. And death spreads through the fall of Adam. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, a lesser to greater argument, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now this is the gospel, friends. And this is where we're going to end. Adam was a historical human being. He was the first human being. And he was created on what we know of as day six. And he's the only creature God created in his image. With the exception of Eve. She is the second creature that is made in God's image. Get this from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They are 
Imago Dei bearers. We bear the image of God. God did not put his image on angels. God did not put his image on dogs, though I love dogs. They're not made in God's image. Nothing but human beings bear God's image. And that word, you know, we could do a series on the Imago Dei because it's so rich and full. It means so much. But this is a special creation of God by which he didn't just speak, he reached into the ground and he formed us out of dirt. And then from Adam, he removes the rib and he fashions Eve from man. And this is a special creation of God that he puts his image in. And now we are broken in the first Adam because he failed, but yet he represented all of us. This is the way God set it up. He was a representative head of all humanity. And if you don't like that, and you're a Christian, you got to think Jesus is your representative head. So if you don't like head representation, you don't like Jesus either, because this is the way God did it. Jesus stands in your place. He lives perfectly according to God's standard and law. He says, I don't do anything I don't see the Father doing. I don't say anything I don't hear the Father saying. I and the Father are one. And he is obedient even to death, death on a cross. The cross was all about him paying the price that we should have paid for our sins. And so when we embrace Jesus as Savior, as the Redeemer, as the one who will forgive us all our sins, he'll remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. He will not count your sins against you. You can show up on judgment day and hear, rather than condemnation, you can hear no condemnation. You can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so, in conclusion, have you, have you found yourself united to the second Adam? God sees humanity either in Adam number one, through which all men came and that sin transferred to all men, or he sees you in the second Adam who lived perfectly. And as we see here, this righteousness, the free gift of righteousness, accomplishing what Adam could not, that righteousness is a gift to us. And it's as if we live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. God the Father will treat you, friends, as if you lived the life of Jesus. And on the cross, God the Father treats Jesus, like he lived our sinful life. This is the gospel. And you have opportunity by throwing yourself upon the mercy of God, asking him to forgive you of your sins. And 1 John 1.9 tells us emphatically, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be cleansed. You can be washed. You can be guilt-free. You can have the righteousness of Jesus all over you, and you can't wash it off. It's on you once it's on you.